Do you want to go from being a product-led? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> do you want to go? Do you want to destroy your company? Like that's what we're that's what we're talking about today. Do you do you need a PMO? Blink twice if you're being held hostage. Do you want to go from a project-led company to a product-led company? Is the podcast today? There we go. I did an intro. Why would you want to do that? <laughs> because because yeah. it's because people tell me I need an intro and I need intro music and I need to come out like a WWE wrestler and I need to cut a promo. Maybe that's what I'll do for episode 100. I don't know. I do decided. it. Do it. I don't want to. You can't make me. I guess my first question with this is I'm going to ask two questions. You can answer any of them in any order you want. What? Why would I want to move from being project led to product led? And are people doing that? Is that important? Is that Allegedly. Training? Allegedly, companies are moving from they say project are. funding to product funding. Yeah, yeah, they say they are. Yes. Don't look under the hood. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, with in terms of like agile software development, teams started to request budgets. The team wanted to request a budget, but the money that was tied to the team was tied to the work that they were doing in terms of product features or discrete initiatives and things like that. And then so now you get like these, these I don't know, back in 2003 and 2004, you get these hippie scrum masters that were like, my team needs a budget for pizza. Well, why are you doing that? Well, so that I can build a more cohesive team so that they relate to each other better because when they relate to each other better, they work better and then you get better product. Organizational psychology, that's not a real thing. Yeah. I, I mean, that, that to me, that feels like where the discussion started. And then 10 years later, then, then people start to dabble in scaling and that definitely breaks the two pizza theory. But I think that's where it all kind of came from. So fast forward to 2023, 22, 23, almost in 23. Mm -hmm. Companies that are, again, allegedly transitioning from project-based to product-based, what would compel them to do that, right? What is wrong with being project-based so that they have to pivot? That is the question worth. That's a good question. Like we probably can make a, we probably can make a pretty like bulletproof list, right? Right, quick. Obviously, aside from the fact that it takes you a year to knock anything out or six months to put anything in front of your customer, like aside from that. But that wasn't enough. Uh, here's my assumptions. I'm putting aside the entire category of it's trendy. My CFO sat next to somebody on a plane from a more wildly successful customer and came back and said, hey, we got to be product-led now, which means that we got to say that we're product-led and change our language and not change anything about the rest of our company. Ding, 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 you win. Yeah. <laughs> That's it right there. Give me my head of my PMO in here. <laughs> this is this is now the product management office. No. That's right. That's right. It's the other That's right. PMO. I, I read it on a Harvard Business Review. It's the product management office, not the project management office. So, success. We're transformed. We're well, transformed. Th thanks, Just everyone, like for listening. Overnight. Like and subscribe. The age-old model has been to pursue and execute projects, <clears throat> right? So, what is not working about that in today's climate, right? That might be a question worth asking. Well... That's motivation. It is. No, it is. And I think this, I do this all the time, like when I'm training. There was a time, even with software, where we treated software like a physical product. Right. So there was a cutoff date. There was a golden copy. That got sent right. to the manufacturer. The manufacturer put it on some kind of a disc, depending on how old you are. <laughs> it could have been a five-inch floppy, like a true floppy. It could have been a three-and-a-half-inch like like hard floppy. It could have been a CD. Then they would stick that into a box. Then they would get a bunch of those, and then they would stick them into a bigger box. They would get the bigger box and stick them onto a truck, and then the trucks would go to the distribution centers or the stores or what have you. So it was treated like a physical product. And so... It, I, for me, like the turning point wasn't, I think I think it was like Civilization V, the video game, Civilization V. So I've been playing Civilization yeah, yeah. since the very first one. Yeah. And when Civ V came out, 
was like, all right, I'm going to do this. So I get in my car, get my wife, get her in the car. We go down to Best Buy. I go find it on the shelf. I get it. And now, mind you, I already had a Steam account at this point. Mm-hmm. I go buy the thing. And then we drive home. We get home. I get in front of my computer. I open up the box. Oh, that new video game smell. And there's a piece of paper in the box. It's no disc. It's a piece of paper. And it said, you need a Steam account to do this. Punch in this code and then you'll get your game. Yeah, and I'm right. like, I never had to leave home. So with the advent of all, like near ubiquitous broadband internet connections, the digital landscape changed because they now were able to move away from physical products completely. Mm-hmm. So I think this has been one of the influencing factors. And it's only become... Uh, more important not less like everybody's doing this with everything i'm doing it now like i get most of my video games like digitally no matter what platform i'm on i don't i hardly ever buy anything physical anymore for those entertainment systems and when you've got that when you've got apis right the applications talking to each other over apis constantly and then even with development studios you can set a cutoff date for a video game and set that to a month or two months into the future or whatever, and then you just keep working. Yeah. And then it's, then you get people get the, they buy the video game, and then it's like you install the video game, and all of a sudden now you have to install the day one patch. But day one patch? Wait, excuse me? Like thirty years ago there was no day one patch. Oh, you had to wait because there was no internet. Always on, right? Ubiquitous consumption, availability, always on. What does that do to the to the product lifecycle now? The product's no longer tied to a physical medium. I mean cutoff dates become very, very arbitrary. They become increasingly arbitrary. It's just a matter of how much risk is your business willing to take on for the development of, of your product. That, that, that's what it becomes. And then at what, yeah. and then at what point, like, right. so you've got that cutoff. So, and this has happened with several famous, very famous video games. I'm sorry, I keep talking about video games. This is the Agile Video Game Podcast. <laughs> but with CD Projekt Red and their Cyberpunk 2077, they released the game and then it was universally panned because there were so many defects right. with the product. Right. Fast forward to almost two years later and version 1.6 and they had gone in and they had fixed all of that yeah. stuff. Again without necessarily having to release a physical product, but now that they had fixed it and said that this is where we wanted the game to be originally when we released it, but we released it earlier. And so they were able to recover. And and they're not the first video game that was able to do that, but it has become one of a, a very short list of kind of reversals. But the, who decided that they had to release when they did? Yeah. And why did they make that decision? That's a modern thing with video games because I, I do recall a period of time where video games were like there were some games that were super buggy and they were put out like when they would put out put them out in a box and ship them to stores. You'd play them and there was no like phoning home to get updates. They were just always buggy forever, right? I remember a whole bunch of games <laughs> back in the early two thousands that were very 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 buggy. That I guess the, the shift there would be to to improve the consumer's experience by saying we're constantly going to give you updates to the product that you bought this is a weird business actually what, what you're talking about is interesting because I, I didn't expect to go down this road of this weird business model the weird business model where you you have a product and you have a service mm-hmm. together so there's a little bit with it but you know what I mean? whereas whereas like early in the i guess the early 2000s video games that were just shipped buggy because people just rushed them out or whatever oh pick a date out of the air it's as good as it's going to be by this date but then it's as good as it's going to be by that date but then when it's out i'm gonna fire all my employees and lock the doors and you know what i mean there's no service to keep running or whatever well, kick everybody out 
I think in those days that you would get like today we call it DLC. Back in those days, it would it would be an expansion for right. for a video game, and then the expansion what it would do is then go back and fix any of the bugs, yeah, yeah. any of the escaped defects, yeah. right? The bugs that had made it into the production copy for like version mm-hmm. .0. This move from to like like a wholly digital. It's not just a digital product. It's a digital product inside of a digital right, ecosystem. Right. Like everything is digital. Yeah. Like from A to Z, like everything about this is is pretty much digital until you get to like the end user where they're sitting on their machine. But the whole process for the product itself, it's it's like it's living in kind of a, a digital ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And I think that really changed things. And what it did was you. So you were talking about a service. Yeah. Is that the product now has a persistence like it didn't before. Right. Mm-hmm. But before, you couldn't act on uh, customer feedback fast enough when you had to put out an, an update like on a disc. Mm-hmm. But now you can. Well, there was, there was no customer feedback. I mean, maybe you bring some people in-house to play oh, it on whatever your in-house machines. Or, or, or you have maybe QA people, like the big the, the big studios have like people in-house that will play yeah. the games or whatever, but like how much stuff can they catch? I don't, I don't know, you know, because especially when I was a manager, I interviewed and or hired someone who used to work for a, a large game don't developer. Say it. Don't say it. What I remember them telling me was that all oh, that, like when you were a tester in those kind of shops, like it was just a, a grindhouse because yeah. like, your job is to play video games. Nobody ever really took your job seriously. They basically wouldn't, they, they would treat you poorly. That's what I was trying to say as a, a tester. So again, like they have testers. I don't know how effective they truly are just because of culture that I have heard of about those organizations from people that have worked there. But anyway, that, that's not what, what, what we're here to talk about. What I want to go back to is you brought up the component of it's like a bit of product, a bit of service. That's where I so, wanted to yeah, go back So to. you have a product and, and, and you have a service. And you, you see this a lot in the video game industry. And, I, and I'm not in the video game industry, I'm a, I'm a, but I'm a, an avid consumer. Uh, but you also, you, you see it in, in, in mobile gaming. So you see it in, in different platforms where they're pushing out updates in this digital um, game as a service or, or, or what have you. And the thing that strikes me is that just that a lot of these digital products are like so, so persistent and and I think especially with social media like some of our social media providers have had their fingers slapped <laughs> for for some of the rules that they had around of, of wanting to keep eyes on on screens mm-hmm. of wanting to keep people engaged and yep. so there's a lot of different ways that you keep people engaged but when you think about these video games like if 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 you wake up in the middle of the night and you have an insomnia, you can turn on your gaming PC, you can yeah. turn on your, your Xbox or your PlayStation, and you can go play something, and you can play it with people that are on the other side of the planet. Same thing with social media. Like You can get onto social media if you have insomnia in the middle of the night. It's not the middle of the night somewhere else. And these platforms are just, they're always, always on. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm old enough, <clears throat> I'm not going to out anybody else, but I'm old enough to remember when they used to play the national anthem on a TV station, and then you got static, and that was it. You were done for the night. That's not the case anymore. So there is an element of persistence, always on, and then the, sometimes the service element weaves itself in there is to keep people interested or to re-spark right. interest periodically mm-hmm. to get them back right. into the platform, whether it be something like a video game, a puzzle game, a yeah. social media, like what have you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the service element is grease in the wheels, like to get things moving. My idea of product-led, it kind of it lends itself pretty easily to this because my idea of product-led is that back in the day when you sold a customer, you had to like everyone had in-house 
servers and you had to run out and go to the client site and bring your media with you and install yep. it in the client. Like, like that, that doesn't exist anymore. Like the customer can just go to your website and they sign on and they enter their payment and they just start paying for the service. And basically your product is the vehicle that brings revenue into the company as mm-hmm. opposed to you have to do some kind of tap dance or whatever to get revenue in for people to sign on to the product. So mm-hmm. there, there's like pure product led which doesn't have a service component. Like the service component might be like, I don't know, people answering your phones or something like that. You know what I mean? Like uh, what, what, what you would think of budgetary overhead. They're not on your CapEx, people that work day to day that don't do software development, mm-hmm. um, that kind of stuff. I'm thinking true product led. And it's interesting that we're talking about this, like the evolution of the gaming industry where you had to go out and put stuff in a box and go sell it and put it on a shelf and sell it. And people got what they got and they never got updates. That's interesting to me because that is a, a close similarity to manufacturing to me yeah. for this. So if I'm going to pivot, <laughs> I wanted to pivot to manufacturing because everybody in the corporate hierarchy that exists outside of the framework of the people that produce things, they all learn their jobs in manufacturing, like turn of the century, tailorism, manufacturing. So you got the contract people, the HR people, the people who do budgeting, you know what I mean? The people who lead the company. What they understand is... I'm going to work, and on this date, you're going to send it to the shipper, and you're going to ship it and put it on the shelves, and it's going to sell, and they're going to send me my money back, right? They don't necessarily understand how their jobs work when, like, I don't, none of that overhead exists. It's just my development team and some servers that my development team maintains, and then they just knock things out, and they get the money. And now, like, what do I need this staff of HR people and this staff of contract people and this staff, like, the, the staff of legacy people in the organization? At the point where I truly am product led and the product is bringing in the money and the team maintaining the product is bringing in the money there's a lot of people left out of that that are not bringing in the money in my organization and I've I've, I've worked at a company like that like early on and when I switched into IT not going to name names but it was a software company our product was software and there are a lot of other people and, and I think there are a lot of other people outside of development and the ones actually creating the, the the product that you need, and I think that's more along the lines for like the company to like interface with like society and the market, and yeah. to interface with the IRS, and they, so there are these other needs that aren't necessarily they're not product needs. They're the company, and because the company is the wrapper around the product, yeah. and so the company needs those, not necessarily the product in and of itself. I mean, you, you t- take a look at Uber; they've. In, in recent years, in recent memory, they've had some issues. It's kind of died down right now, but a couple of years ago, everybody was wanting to pick a fight with Uber. Entire countries were wanting to pick, a, cities were wanting to pick a fight with Uber. You know, so now all of a sudden, maybe, I don't know, but maybe Uber grows its yeah. legal staffing a bit in order to handle all of the incoming yeah, yeah, yeah. litigation. And that's a that's a corporate thing that has relatively little to do with the product. Oh boy, hang on, let's let's argue about that one because like I could take that to an extreme to be like, well, it's like testing. What does that have to do with the product? We'll <laughs> throw that over the fence to another department. And marketing, what does that have to do with the product? We'll throw that over the fence to another department. Like I, I think, oh, and and when we need when people quit on my team and I need to hire somebody, ah, that's recruiting. I'll throw that over the fence to another department. And now. We're back to square one PMO silos throughout the organization. Oh, Brian, you're just being pedantic. Maybe, I don't know, Jessica's happy because I said the word pedantic. But like, <laughs> my point being, the modern agile software development team, the cross-functional team, if you take cross-functional, 
to its furthest evolution, <laughs> like you go through the wormhole and you get on the other side. Like if you got a heavy, heavy regulatory in your product, mm-hmm. your team should have people dedicated to dealing with regulatory. Yes, t- team or teams. I, like I realize I'm kind of being ridiculous in that. Like, well, if my I have 20 teams that all scale together, you're going to need a whole body of regulatory people, or maybe one for per country or whatever. Right. So. To me, like that's a question of scaling, and I still feel like that agile in and of itself is is wrestling with scaling. I don't think product management, like as a discipline, or at least I'm not aware of, where product management tries to wrestle with this idea of scaling, because execution is only a small part of like product management. Like there are other things that you have to do, and so there there are a lot of product managers who do act as as product owners, but I would say that there are some that don't as well, um, and then they concern themselves with more strategic kind of concerns and 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 that's fine it depends on what your company needs but scaling is to me has always felt kind of like an agile centric kind of an issue but how do you merge the that agile scaling because i think people are still wrestling with that today the the product management aspect of it which has had a, a resurgence Yep. in the past couple of years yeah, yeah. how do you get all of that stuff to kind of go together for me like when you said oh well let's just cut the testers or put them in another department to me that speaks to quality and customer delight don't give your customers an easy reason to be mad at you yeah. and poor quality is one of them and so I would say like no 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 they are part of because we have to have a, a certain level of quality that's kind of like a non- non-functional requirement mm-hmm. there's a certain threshold you can't go below that some of the HR stuff again like that's more of the corporate wrapper, the enterprise wrapper around like your product and, and its development team. And those things just have to be there. Like you have to pay your taxes, you have to follow certain regulations and certain industries are more highly regulated. So I've, I've worked for a, <clears throat> a steel manufacturer in the IT department and we used to build applications for them, but their mantra, because they were a steel manufacturer was safety first, safety yeah. first, safety first. Yeah, yeah. Why? Because molten steel if not treated properly, can cause great harm. Oh, yeah, that, that could ruin your whole day. <laughs> it could. And several, several days. <laughs> yes. So that mantra of safety first like permeated yeah. the company because of the sector yeah. that we were in. And so you'll get those influences from manufacturing. And I don't think we've ever really gotten away from Taylorism, but you'll get those in, in different companies in the IT field, like where they're building the applications. You'll get these other kind of seemingly foreign ideas that are coming from that entity, that corporate wrapper around around your digital product. I think there are functions within a company that you can directly attribute to the product, mm-hmm. right? Sales, for one, right? Testers we talked about in software. And then there are others that are indirect contributors like mm-hmm. HR and finance, you could say, the filing taxes, things like that. But ultimately, they're still needed, right? As a company, you still need them. And there's a certain portion of that that you could say contributes to the product because that product still has to have P&L, right? You still have to have taxes filed. You still need all of the regulatory stuff has to happen, right? Compliance has to happen for that product if, if it's uh, mm-hmm. uh, applicable there. So my point here is it doesn't matter if it's direct or indirect, right? There are some things that you can point at and say those things are attributes that are needed for the product to go out. Mm-hmm. But for companies that aren't thinking about it from a product perspective, they're thinking about it from project attitude, right? They don't think about all that because they're not funding a product, they're funding a project. Yeah, right. And a project by its definition has a beginning and an end. Yeah, mm-hmm. And in that, it may or may not have 
the life cycle of a product, right? Typically for most products, especially tangibles, they outspan the duration or the funding duration of a project. And most I've seen is annual budgets, right? So mm-hmm. if a product goes beyond a year, you're really funding mm-hmm. projects, but it's not the product, right? So then what happens? You, you get money, you get lobby for it. If you get it, you get it. If you don't use it up by the end of the year, then you lose it. Mm-hmm. How does that impact the product in two ways, right? One is the quality, therefore the returns for the, for the company. And the other is the company has an obligation to its clients to provide a product that meets the client's needs mm-hmm. or the customer's needs in a safe manner, et cetera. So in the, from those perspectives, right? How does not thinking about it from a product point of view, harm or not harm the business, right? That, that might be worth teasing out. I mean, we could take services as a product. Mm-hmm. That, that's a bit more challenging there as well. But you could, right? Because a lot of people are now turning Uber. You know, you're not buying the car, you're just buying a time slice. Airbnb, same sort of thing. These aren't businesses that were around a few years ago, but they're here now. Yeah. And so how, how do you think they would be if they weren't thinking about it from a product perspective? How would you run a company that didn't say we're doing products? For a company that embodies one product, and some of these questions can be complicated, but they're less complicated than a, a company that has a, a really complex kind of product or service landscape. For sure. If you're a company and you have multiple products, or if you have multiple flavors of products, then some of these questions, they get compounded in, in, in terms of their complexity, right? Like the Taylor's whole shtick was that he was optimizing a complicated but finite system. And so what's happened with the internet and with access to consumers and participants around the globe from all walks of life, everywhere, from every country and in every language, that has turned the the complexity dial for just about anything that you do with products like up to 11. The issue with this stuff that's rooted in Taylorism is the idea of the command and control mentality is as long as I can have complete control of every single one of my workers and I can tell them what to do with every single movement when they're picking up pig iron and moving it to the train car, like as long as they follow my exact instructions on how to do the work, except the problem is now you're applying those disciplines to knowledge work where you have no idea what you're talking about, number one, because you've never done the job. And num- number two, that particular work you're being asked to do is potentially new and th- you don't know what the best way to do it is. Oh boy, I'm, I'm giving a summary of Taylorism. So your organization is designed to be command and control and now you're saying, oh, I want to let the product and the software, I want to follow that. And as the users take me places, I want to change the product and, and, and follow the users and give them the best product. Except your hierarchy is not that way. Your teams are not built that way. You're, you know what I mean? People are waiting around like, what do I work on next? Work on whatever's best for the customer. How I don't talk to customers. Yeah. Why would I? Yeah, go do discovery work. They go, oh. There's no element of discovery yeah. in Taylorism apart from... The, the manager that's it's, discovering or optimizing it's this closed job. system. That's right. It's management's job right. to do discovery in, in Taylorism, yeah. which is funny because it wasn't even management's job in Taylor. It's, it, that was Taylor's job. I, I'll come in and optimize your company and then buy my book. Yeah. <laughs> where, where have we heard that one before? Oh, people saying just buy my book and everything will be great. For every post I've read like that on social media, I oh, get a dime. Oh, man. Yes. Man. Work has changed is what we're saying. Products have changed, right? And the thinking behind the product from funding through the hierarchy to your point of the organization, they haven't necessarily changed as much. No, we're still, I believe that we're still fundamentally 
optimized for that that Tayloristic viewpoint. Like right. we're optimized to, or, or we're we're organized to optimize economies of scale. Mm-hmm. Like that's to me, like that's that's what it's about. And I forget the researcher who was talking about like uh, the the installation periods of certain innovations. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I remember can't that. remember her name, but her work is great, and I love that graphic. She made it look like so neat and cut and dry, but it's it's not. It's messy because then you've still got that idea, the, the that wave of like early adopter, late adopter. Like you've still got all of that in, and there are so as innovations become more ubiquitous, you get companies that are early adopters of it. So companies that existed before and they're early adopters of the technology, and then they might start to change. You get companies that are the digital natives, and and I think one of the problems that companies have is that they compare themselves with these digital natives when they're doing digital stuff, but some of these companies, they never had the hangups that some of the older companies have had because they were created in a different environment. Yeah, their DNA is different, right? Yeah. Uh, from, from the get-go. So, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. you taking us all the way back to the beginning of the podcast. Why are we looking to transform from projects to products? Well, probably because you're, you're seeing the cost of what it takes to run your company or your projects creep up and up and up. And you're seeing your margins go down and down and down and down. And, and you see a future where like, hey, it's not going to be profitable anymore. We're basically not going to be able to run the business anymore. And you are looking to head that off. How you head it off, I, I don't know. I mean, you have, you have to change a lot of these deep-rooted things that, that are in line with what everyone out there trying to do, a agile transformation. I notice that people don't really use that term anymore. What, what all these people trying to do, agile transformations, what they're trying to do. But the big thing that I wrote down is a note for myself to remember is I don't see you being successful in any of this stuff if you can't break that annual budgeting. If you can't break that Taylorism annual budgeting cycle of like, it took thirty nine ninety five to run my company last year, so it should take... Thirty nine ninety five plus two percent to run my company this year or whatever. It's really hard to change that kind of deep rooted culture, though. I feel like go mm-hmm. to any of the CFOs and go, "We're just shifting that now, right? We're not doing project based funding anymore. We're going to change it completely, turn it on its head." Right? That's and not what they learned. Merit, yeah, that's not they what didn't they learn that yeah, exactly. Right. I think companies do wrestle with this because it turns to them of like, how do they attribute the money, like incoming, and then like, how do they disperse? the money for their operations and everything they just don't know what to do with that in in a kind of a new environment and they've still got they're still tied back to these old ideas of like capex and opex because of tax laws yeah are you saying that company leadership doesn't have all the answers i might be uh oh, that goes, that directly goes against the tenets of Taylorism. It's right? possible. I don't know why. Like we're we're we're. I don't know why we're actively trying to get people to stop watching this video. So much. like <laughs> we started with budgeting, we dropped Taylorism like fifteen times. Uh, we yeah. did, like I guess now's the time to say we did a podcast on Taylorism. If you want to like, if, if you got a free day. <laughs> the funny thing is, I recently edited a podcast where we we're talking about leadership is delegating a bit of their leadership accountability down to the team, accountability responsibility down to the team. Mm-hmm. And that it is slash should be embodied in what the scrum master does. And then with the episode was about like what do you do when an organization doesn't have a scrum master? Like, well, it gets delegated to someone who does a part time. I'm not going to harp on that in this episode. I promise, because I'm not going but down this road. Watch that one, everybody. Yeah, you certainly can. But the the idea that in, in this organization, like if people have annual budgets and have, they have these giant HR organizations stuff like that, the idea that they're going to take a, any bit of leadership and pass it down and entrust the teams and empower the teams to do leadership for their little bit of the organization mm-hmm. or even if you think about like a scaled organization like i i the whatever uh, maybe that large an organization you're not going to be like a ceo you'd be like a director or something like that mm-hmm. you know, i mean a large business or like a a partner or a managing director or something like that in other types of firms we'll, we'll come down and say hey these are my goals i'm gonna come to you 
as maybe you're some kind of scaled something, I don't know, scaled product, something like that, and say, hey, these are my goals. Get your teams, assemble your teams, and you guys have to figure out how to accomplish them. As opposed to give me a map of everything you're going to do for the next 18 months. That's funny that you bring this up because this is a discussion that we're having at work right now. And so the push is towards for the entire organization, the entire enterprise to be more product centric with the product centricity being the vehicle to allow us to be more customer centric, more focused on the customer. And we we focus on the customer by providing them ways to interact with our, our, our digital products. So some of the, the, the agile coaches, the, the, the thinkers, the deep thinkers have been talking about, they prefer to reference themselves as thought provokers. (laughs) I thought, used to be thought I, leaders. I thought you were going to say deep stinkers, but but not but not T H O T provokers, not 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 those. So, but we've been having this discussion of of we want more empowered product teams. Now that leads you to the what is your definition in in your context of of a product? What does that mean? And yeah. so possibly. If you haven't examined your definition or if you've never examined your definition of a product in your context, you should. Absolutely. Like the number one thing, like in terms of like when you start putting agile and product management together, it's like the number one place where mistakes start to happen is in product definition. Yeah. Like hands down. Right. I'm not even talking about like team formation or any of the, the more heavy agile stuff, but like in product definition is like, what is your product? Like, who's your target market? Like, what is your value proposition? Like, do you know all these things? Can you yeah. rattle them off if yeah. you're stuck in the elevator with somebody? But the idea of like product definition, like you've you've really got to, to nail that down because then that in turn influences what your product teams look like. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we've been talking about bounded Autonomy And what's that autonomy bounded by? Well, it's bounded by somebody in the upper echelons that does have some goals. Mm -hmm. And so I think what we're kind of saying right now is that what we would like to see come down from the top is not like, here's my master plan, go execute it. Mm -hmm. We would like to see these are my strategic priorities. And then have that leader ask teams and teams of teams and teams of teams of teams, how do we meet this? And then that leader then in turn like supporting those teams and giving them what they need in terms of resources. And when I say resources, I mean, um, you know, physical things, talent, support, learning, whatever it is that they need for them to turn around and realize those strategic priorities in priority order. (laughs) Think about how powerful that is, though, because from a team's perspective, a team member's perspective, you are asked, you weren't told, right? And your opinion was regarded. It may not, in the end, be the only thing they listen to. Fine, mm-hmm. but your opinion was valued and mm-hmm. invited and regarded. Right? Mm-hmm. You're bought into it, and that is fantastic. If you're bought into it, you're going to give it your all. If you're bought into it, mm-hmm. I think we said it earlier. I, I agree with you. But the Taylorism thing doesn't allow for discovery of no. anything. Like a Taylor was the one doing the discovering. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but yeah. in an in an environment where you do have maybe some bounded autonomy, where you do have some kind of a concept of a value stream of a trigger that results in getting paid mm-hmm. uh, and, and you tell this group of people kind of what the bounds of the playing field are but inside that playing field do what you need to do yeah. in order to realize these different things yeah. 
Like I think that is powerful. Yeah, it is. Just bring all of those brains to bear on this concept to cash. Right? Yeah. Well, it, like there's an element of the lean startup in what we're talking about now because when you start talking about scaling, like my my like my eyes gloss over and I, was, I start like passing out a little bit. I feel when a company starts talking about scaling, I'm like, you you guys have missed some some things. Possibly. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm being ridiculous but also being ridiculous in the bounds of my experience, where when companies start getting involved with like heavy, heavy scaling, the strategy becomes obscured from everybody. And and they get involved with that kind of stuff because the goals and the vision and that kind of stuff is, is, is not coming down clearly. The goals of leadership is not coming down clearly, so now you just get the goals of management. Mm-hmm. That that was a that was woo, I said that clearly. And that was in that and that's it. That's the only good point I'm gonna make today. Because like that you have you have leadership and you have management. Like that we had a podcast where Stormy was talking about she had only ever been where her job title was product owner. And she recently got a job where her job title is product manager. So we had a podcast and the podcast was basically like me asking her like, hey, are you involved in crafting strategy now? Are you involved in doing like some tests to figure out what, who's got the best idea? Do, and like how often do you push back on like, what makes you think this is the way we should go? What makes you think this is not the way we should go? Do, do, do you vet ideas before you implement things? And, and she's like, this is a new world. And I feel in this new world, this is the same thing I went through when I went from a PO role into a PM job. Like all this stuff, I was kept out of. It's in the career field, right? Because product management, product ownership is just part of product management. We're gonna stay away from that argument. No, Um, we're not. No, (laughs) scrap. But like, there's all this stuff that I should be involved in, and now I have to think, like years later I have to think, like was I kept out of it because like in that podcast, I was like, oh, I was kept out. Oh, I'm so angry because I was kept out of it because oh, it's it just everyone's ego. They didn't want to do whatever. But in retrospect, but I'm like, you know what? Like maybe I was kept out of discussions about strategy and idea testing and stuff like that just because like there was no strategy. We were just following sales. Whatever sales did, we just there wasn't. There was never a corporate strategy. No one ever talked about it because they weren't running a good business like you gotta you gotta run <laughs> in order to do a bunch of this stuff that you're talking about you have to be you have to have a good business yeah so i came into agile from product management mm. so i was already a product manager yeah, yeah. when 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 i was asked to be a product owner and it felt kind of like a natural fit because i was working with a small team and it was a kind of a platform approach where we had some 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 minor products and then when you put all when you strung all of that together then it formed this comprehensive kind of whole mm-hmm. so I never had those problems yeah. in terms of who's your target market. I, I knew, and and I wasn't working on a like a for-profit product. I was working on kind of like a it's an ancillary sub support product. It was a, a baseline product, mm. not even a, a a real product. We had the product that we sold, and this was a baseline yeah. service, the support service that you had to have. So I mean, we're talking about forums where they could go and talk about things. Yeah. We're, we're talking about online documentation, talking about the learning management platform where we could go and we could offer like certifications yeah. in our in our complicated product. So I, I had to help keep all of that stuff kind of integrated. For me, acting as a product owner in that environment was not such a big stretch. I was aware of alpha and beta groups and surveys and doing those things and talking to those people. And one of the biggest mistakes I think that Agile has made is that you've got this idea of a product owner. And you will actually see some Agilists say on the internet that the product owner for the team should be the highest product person at the company. Now you're laughing. Why are you laughing? I'm laughing because I've actually seen that in almost the same words what people have said that I think 
you so, know, but now you have now you have this juxtaposition of I'm trying to keep my 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 fingers on camera. Don't do it. Put your of, finger uh, anywhere you want. Really high that side of the table. level product <laughs> person, but the team is considered the front line in terms of product development. That's the lowest kind of like rung on the totem pole that you can have. So how do you rectify or justify those two things? And in a lot of places and a lot of times, product owners are treated like delivery managers. Yep. There's very little product anything going on there. And that's why, to me, coming into product ownership from previously being a product manager mm -hmm. made more sense. Mm -hmm. I didn't wrestle with it as much because right. it was just a subset of... Right. That was just a me dabbling in execution and I knew about the other things. Oh boy. But a lot of product owners go the other yep. way and that's where they get in trouble because their focus remains on execution having been around the team all the time. Yeah. When was the last time that you talked to a customer? When was the last time that you went on site with a customer and just kind of quietly shadowed them as they used your product? When was the last time that you, you had a survey with a, a beta group or an alpha group? Who are your product champions amongst your customers? Like, mm -hmm. if you can't answer those questions or if you say, no, I've never done any of those things, there is a whole element of the product stuff that you're missing out on. And I would argue that, like, in that Tayloristic command and control environment, it's that element of discovery that is just discouraged. Yeah. But in today's environment, because of, oh, now we start to tie it all back together, because of the ubiquitous internet, because of the concept of like persistent products and products that have a service element that is also like periodic inside the life of that, that product, mm -hmm. because of all of these things, like you have got to be paying attention to what your, your customers, your users are doing. You have to be looking out ahead yeah. You cannot just be looking behind because... Didn't even mention competitiveness. But how do you differentiate yourself from them? Yeah. But if you're not looking ahead in terms of product and what's going on, in terms of your product versus the competitor, in terms of just what's going on in the market, in terms of like larger economic forces, like if you've never heard, talked about porters like five forces or pestle analysis or uh, you know the competitive landscape, yeah. how many product owners do you know that talk about those things on a regular daily basis? Well, very few that I know even talk about feedback from the customer. Oh, NPS and none of that. A lot of that stuff's foreign to them. Listen, I, like I'll I'll tie it immediately back to what we're talking about because if you're a product owner, if you got hired in because the company says that they want to be more product led, they've historically been a project company. They're transforming. Trust me, they're like one last drink and they'll never drink again. I pro I promise. That's that like that's the it's the same thing for me. Like I, I swear. But like, I, I was trying to make a leap to say the 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 project led people that are hiring product people because they want to be product led now, but they don't do discovery. They do annual budgeting. How can they All hire their... for something that they don't understand? Oh, oh, you, you yeah. underestimate their power. <laughs> 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 uh, what I'm saying is they're hiring for all these new positions because they want to be product led. They, they heard that that's the way to do it, but again, all of their budgeting is done annually. All their contracts still stipulate you've got to do whatever, do Gantt charts and stuff like that. They still have their PMO in place. They still have all this stuff. So your product, you come in, and you're saying, well, I can't believe that you'd be product, you'd come in, you would never do any discovery work or whatever. Well, actually, I can, because the people that would gravitate to those roles would come in, and they'd do what they're told, and they'd be happy, and they'd cash their paycheck. And they're basically, they're not, they're not incented on anything that a yeah. good product manager would ever do. Yeah. So why would they, so basically, now you get Agile in name only, or whatever, I guess this is the pr product-led in name only, I guess, that yeah. sounds weird. Sure. Well, that's, that's exactly right. It's in name only, right? You're doing everything, you're going through the motions, but you're really not 
changing what needs to be changed. It looks great on the shareholder report. That's like that's like signing up to go to the gym every January. And oh yeah, and not going. (laughs) Oh, do you know? I mean, that's actually part of their business model is like the uptick in gym memberships in January, and then like each like they so it has a shelf life that they kind of count on. And like they have percentages, like like part of their business model is people buying gym memberships right. and not right. going. Right. What are the top things? What what, what things should should we be doing? We talked a whole bunch about things we shouldn't be doing and things that are holdovers. Like what are the things we should be doing? Again, for me, this always goes back to like the product definition. Like you have got to like understand what your I don't know, to be corny, cheesy, whatever. Like your product vision. Like, what is your target market? Like, what are you, what's the value proposition of your product? And when you talk product management and, and you talk products, it's like you have to create a solution that is so good that somebody volunteers to give you money mm-hmm. for that thing that you are offering. Mm-hmm. Like, it has to be that good. A lot of companies and organizations would struggle with that because they've never done it before. So my offering here is, Get somebody like you guys. Get get a product person in. Get some outside help because you don't know how to do it yourself. You can keep saying you want to be product this and that, but you're going to be doing the same thing, just using new words. So get some expertise in to help you jumpstart. Yeah, because I, I can be very disruptive in an organization because when I go in, like I do start asking those questions. What is your product? Who is your target market? Mm-hmm. What is your value proposition? And when you start asking those questions, and they and I, we said this earlier, like yeah. if, if they can't answer that, then to me that indicates like like that's the seed that everything else flows out of in terms mm-hmm. of like product. Yeah. And then if you can't answer those things, like just off the everybody from your VP of product or whatever it is, all the way down to people on the team should be able to answer those questions. And if you don't, then your seeds that partially rotten. Yeah, you got to yeah. fix that. You got to fix that first before you go and fix anything else. Absolutely, I, I would definitely agree with the like. You need that strategy layer, that that leadership layer. You need that functioning first if you want. If you truly want to be product led, like that, that needs to function. So another thing that product people shouldn't do, right, is the gut check. I've, I've been a product manager for a long time on yeah. multiple products. I like to think that I have pretty good instincts, and and in most cases. I do, mm-hmm. but that's never going to replace like data, data yeah. research, and really understanding kind of like what's going on, yeah. like how my users are, are actually using my product as opposed to how I intended them to use my product. Yeah, it's conjecture at that point, right? So it just needs to be backed with evidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And evidence, like evidence, like trumps feelings, intuitions almost every single time transforming the organization where you're looking at the right metrics or your your evidence base or your data driven or whatever whatever you want to call it like that will definitely help you stick with being product led. I think of all of the either visionary or sales led organizations that I've been around and it's all based on f- feeling. I I've been in organizations that had very very strong sales departments and and I've seen a strong sales department stifle product innovation because the sales organization felt threatened yeah, by by the innovation. Oh, now, really? the innovation was directly, directly in line with everything that technology was pointing towards at the time. My thing to add to this list is budgeting. You, you have to change the budgeting because in this case, what you just said encapsulates perfectly my arguing point, but they'll, they'll see exactly that. Like sales brought in this revenue. Right. 
but I mean, actually, like sales didn't bring in any revenue. Like the the product team maintaining the product, we could argue that at, there was at least an equal responsibility of the team that developed those features should have of developing an appealing product. Yeah, yeah, but I understand like the way budgets go is like sale. Here's all the money we brought in, and here's the salespeople that that sign those contracts. Mm-hmm. So that's where the money comes from, and then the developers are looked at as overhead and expense of maintaining a product that's already running. Basically. I'm going out and I'm building a building and it cost me a million dollars to build a building and I'm going to capitalize that million dollars over the next 10 years so the building only costs $100,000 a year so and but now I got all these developers that I'm that's sitting around doing nothing cuz I already got my building that exists but that's not the way that development works like it, that it, a modern software product requires constant maintenance otherwise the building just falls over and this is another thing that I like to talk with uh, to people about is that we talked earlier about digital products and like a digital ecosystem. Yeah. So the thing that you have to realize about a digital ecosystem is that somebody else. So, I mean, let's just say like in your in your digital product, in your prototype, you were pointing to a, a Google library of some sort. Uh, Google hosts a lot of different libraries. Sure. And then one day Google turns that library off. Sure. And overnight, your application stopped working. Or your prototype stopped working. Or maybe it made it from the prototype into the production product and that library was never brought in-house. Then you just yell, who tested this? Get, heads are going to roll. But yes, exactly. <laughs> in, a, in a digital ecosystem, what can happen is, is that other digital service providers, other digital products yeah. can have impacts on your digital product independently of, of, of you and your company. Yeah. yeah, and a dramatic impact at that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely, that's so true. Yeah. And that's that, to me, was eye-opening. That was scary. Like, what do you mean that Company X can update their stuff and make it non-backwards compatible, and now all of a sudden I have a whole part of my product that doesn't work? And, and then to add to that, to compound onto that complexity, is the fact that it's a moving target, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, as technology progresses, yeah. like, you have to keep up with a certain yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of, like, minimum threshold, and if you don't... Yeah. Anybody that works in the AWS stack, like they, they are pretty aggressive about constantly updating and deprecating previous versions. And you can't work on deprecated versions, so you have to stay current. So where you've kind of pointed out about the digital ecosystem, we're back to Deming. Great. Awesome. Well, this podcast is over. Like the, <laughs> the, the environment is changing underneath your company. Yep. It's like the sand is shifting underneath yep. your building. And you're still going forward with this mentality, project mentality. You're still going forward with this mentality of, I can just stand up a project and just put stilts under my building and move my building over and do it one time. Mm-hmm. And then like a year from now when the sand moves again, I'll just pick, pick my building up and move it again. And, and you know, and in the meanwhile, I fired all the people because they were contractors in the yep. first place that, that did the big Nobody project. So how to the brain drain has happened. I don't have any of those yeah. employees there anymore. Like that, that's not a viable way to run your business. No. And, and and I think one of the number one dysfunctions of project-based budgeting is that when you have project-based bu- budgeting and a project is opened or declared and, and you're trying to decide how much funding to give, everybody piles on. Right. And they bring everything with them, their entire wish list. Of course. And this is stuff that and, – and we see this in government too, like they with bills and laws they and don't, things. Like they don't know when they're going to eat again. Of course they're doing that. Like they're, <laughs> they have to. It's literally like I don't know where my next meal's coming right. from. Like let me get onto this project. And that pulls focus away from where you should be going and what you should be doing because they're, I mean, it's product management, product owners, like prioritization is kind of like our, our, our bread and butter. Mm-hmm. It's why we should do this feature over that feature. Well, if you're into that product space and you're talking to customers, it's because that feature is important 
to them, it's because there's going to be some kind of like a return on investment for pushing that feature out if it's well implemented. That level of focus in this project-based funding space, I don't think it's it's just not there because so many people are piling on and, and it's 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 not a scrum it's just more of a dog pile like it's just <laughs> i mean it, yeah that's that's what happens when you don't have strong leadership projecting a vision the topic of the podcast is moving from a project led to a product led organization like but we could have rebranded the podcast to talk about the leadership ability to make, decide to do something and then stick with it like that 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 probably like if i could do the podcast again i would start from there to be like hey how can i as a leader in an organization trying to go through this ensure that it's going to be a success how can i avoid all of these little hurdles little hurdles that annual budgeting little hurdle yeah so we've talked about like kind of agile transformations and then going from project-based funding to 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 product funding or Mm -hmm. to to being a product-led organization part of this has to do for me with the idea of like the learning organization. So you were talking about like the business or the building that was built on sand. It's the learning organization. That's the organization that is constantly, the business that's constantly probing, Mm -hmm. constantly probing the market, as opposed to some of our businesses that, that we've seen that are no longer on the, the, the S&P 500. So like in a lot of places when you start talking like Agile, like, oh, we don't say Agile around here. We've been through three Agile transformations and they've all failed. And so Agile like, doesn't work here the, anymore. We the, like the to one, say it doesn't work here. Yeah. 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 yeah I, I, with the Agile software development, with product management, you're literally trying to be more responsive to your customer and to the market around you and, and to be aware of those things. And I think one of the characteristics of a, a product-led organization is that even your leaders even the people on the team, like, I mean, heck, maybe even some of your cleaning staff, depending on how you, you, you broadcast some of this stuff, might be aware, should be aware of, like, what's going on in the market and what your goals are and, and, and what it is that you're trying to accomplish and how you, yep. how you accomplish those things. When everybody is aware of those things, when everybody's in has that drive to learn, to probe, and then to act on the findings, like, to me, that's a product-led organization. The learning organization. It might have been Peter Senge all those years yep. ago that came yeah. up with that. Yeah, the fifth discipline. Yeah, he was one of the big proponents of that, and I think there have been others too. Uh, Simon Sinek, was, uh, and now and now it's Book Hour. Simon Sinek, well, the Infinite Game. Now nobody's yes. listening. Thanks, thanks, y'all. 